I had uh, more questions on that message than generally I get from preaching. In fact, generally don't get any questions from my preaching, but just, you know. So, but the, the response was interesting. People brought up different questions, and, and there were good questions, and I realized there was a lot more that needed to be said on the subject. Uh, so I'm attacking this uh, question once again uh, with, from a little different angle and maybe some other things that I didn't bring out uh, the last time. So uh, I appreciate those of you who uh, brought up various questions and uh, wanted to delve into the subject a little bit more. So uh, to begin with, let me review by saying that, uh, yes, we can know that we are saved. And I believe that that's an important thing. And when I say uh, saved, what I mean by that is that we have had our sins have been forgiven before God, that we know that we have eternal life. We know that when we do pass out of this world that we'll be with the Lord, that we have an assurance of that. Uh, but there is uh, a, a importance in the fact that there is, there's two parts to this. And the two parts are actually being saved and then actually being sure that we're saved. There's, those are two different things. Uh, and if you have been around church for a while, you may have struggled with that or you may question that, especially younger people. You may be wondering... Uh, there is ample uh, scriptural uh, exhortation for us that we should make our calling and election sure. That is to be sure that we know that God has called us, that he's chosen us uh, for himself. 2 Peter 1, 10 and 11 and Hebrews 11, uh, 6, 11 and 12 also gives us another exhortation along this line to show that we should show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So in other words, God wants us and commands us even to seek to have assurance of salvation. But there's an, a warning that we ought to keep in mind here. And that is, as I said, there is a difference between being saved and being certain that we're saved. So everybody is either in one category or the other unsaved or saved, correct? We either know God through Christ, we either know eternal life, we either know that we have forgiveness of our sins or we do not. And there's also the possibility of being uncertain about that. I remember as a young Christian uh, being very encouraged to learn that it was possible to be certain that I am saved because I had been uncertain most of my life. Of course, I was unsaved most of my life up until that point. And so if we are saved and we're certain of it, in this case, we could say that we are assured and we are correctly assured of our salvation. And that is a great place to be. I trust that you are in that place. 
Uh, but there is also the possibility that you might be a true believer in Jesus Christ, but you still lack certainty about that. You're not quite sure about it. And when I spoke to you all the last time, I mentioned that one of the reasons why that often can happen, and, and somebody confirmed it <laughs> after the message, the reason why sometimes a person can actually have put their faith in Christ, they believed in him, they trusted in him, they're not trusting in their own works to go to heaven, but they are uncertain. Sometimes the problem is that they hear these, these dramatic testimonies at the Billy Graham crusade or somewhere where some you know, Hollywood celebrity has been changed and transformed and born again. And, and, and they think, wow, that didn't happen to me. I didn't have any kind of dramatic thing like that. Maybe a person who came to Christ as a child doesn't even remember ever not believing, but always believed. Um, and there's, there's that possibility that there are people in that category that truly trust in Christ, but are not really sometimes not certain about it. I think also there is a danger that sometimes we hear teaching that is confusing on this subject that says if you come to Christ and you trust in him, you become a new creature in Christ. This is true to that degree. But there's also, the, there's also a teaching of perfectionism. That is, when you come to Christ, your sins are washed away. You're forgiven completely, but you also become completely sanctified. So we, and you hear this from time to time from this pulpit, that we keep those two things separate. Our justification means we're standing before God, but our sanctification is an ongoing, lifelong process. We are always in, um, we're always a work in progress. Um, I remember uh, when I was a young Christian and, and I did know that I was saved, but then after a certain period of time, I began to realize that I was still, there was still a lot of baggage from my, in my life, and there is even to this day. Uh, so we are, we continue to be a work in progress. Now on this other scale here, you can also have people who are, not saved, and they know they're not saved. These are people that have really no doubts about it. I gave a story about a friend of mine years ago who, uh, when I shared how I'd come to Christ, uh, his response to me was, uh, John, unless I change my ways, I'm going to hell. So he was unsaved, and he was certain that he was unsaved. At least he was not what I would call deluded. The person who is unsaved, number four, and is thinking that they are saved, and there are a lot of people that you run into like this. They, they, uh, they don't trust in Christ for salvation. They don't believe, either they don't think their sin is that bad, or they don't. Uh, believe that they believe that they're about as good as anybody else. Charlie mentioned somebody like that that he knows really well um, himself, right, this morning. Uh, when he was a young man, he, he took pride in his own works and his own standing, and, he, and people told him he's a good boy. I'm sure he was a good boy, but that didn't keep him from being lost. So this person in this category 
is deluded. Which is the most dangerous place to be of all if we think we're okay and we're not. We are deluded. Let me ask you this. How many of you here, raise your hand, how many of you here are deluded? Anybody? Okay, good. Well, you see, you couldn't raise your hand because if you were deluded, you wouldn't realize you were deluded, otherwise you wouldn't be deluded. But there are people who are deluded, and you can find them when you ask the question, hmm, let's say you were to die today and you stood before God and He said, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? And then they recite all of their good works. You know that person is deluded because what are they trusting in? They're trusting in themselves and not in Christ. Um, so these are the four basic possibilities of what where we could be. Uh, and uh, my prayer is that we would all be people who know Christ, who are saved, and we are certain of that. Uh, but I think that, you know, my experience is that even in the church where the gospel is preached faithfully, there are still people who still wonder if, they're, if they are actually, in fact, uh, saved and going to heaven. It could be that what we're going to talk about tonight hopefully will shed a little bit more light on the subject and be, and be helpful uh, to us. So uh, another thing that I mentioned uh, to you all the last time when we talked about this was that when we are born again, and that is an essential element of our conversion, we, our hearts have to be changed. There has to be a change in our inclinations. The, the natural person, as we're born into this world and grow up and live a normal life and do all the normal things that people do and sin and stuff, our, our natural state is not to seek after God. Our natural state is to seek after ourselves. We are, by nature, selfish. We are, na by nature, looking out for our own, looking out for number one and just trying to, um, you know, advance our own selves. So when a person is born again, there is a change. Some change happens that we don't, is, is oftentimes not, a, not connected to anything we can explain. It just happens some, somehow. God works, and there is a change that takes place. And all of a sudden, the person who didn't want to hear the Bible preached would go to church or turn on a broadcast of some kind or start reading Scripture or talk to someone. It could be that there's a person involved in that process, but it's basically what God does. And you can tell because there's a change in one's response. You just look at things differently. I remember how uh, in my own experience, the the way I felt about the Christians that I knew, uh, and I shared with you all before, that I had developed the attitude that as a young person growing up in church and through high school and, and so forth, that I had developed the uh, conviction, shall we say, a bad conviction, that all Christians are hypocrites, that all the people in my church were hypocrites, and therefore... Nobody's really living the Christian life, and all this stuff we're talking about is just phony. 
And then uh, I ran into some very solid um, disciples of Christ, some Christians uh, on the campus where I was going to college. And I, my theory was blown apart because no longer could I say there are no real Christians in the world and I'm certainly not going to stick my neck out and try to be one. Uh, this was the, the first thing that happened to me was that I saw these people and they were real Christians, what I thought were real Christians. I mean, why would you walk around on the campus of Virginia Tech, you know, carrying a Bible and talking to people about Jesus and knock on doors and in the dorm and ask people to come to Bible study? I mean, why would you do that? I mean, there's no sense in that, right? Um, so I was convinced by that that there were real Christians. At least I found some, and they found me at the same time. And I tried to keep as far away from them as I could for as long as I could, but they were uh, persistent. They were out after me. Um, and so they pursued me for months and months. And I reluctantly went to some Bible studies and various activities when I couldn't get out of it, couldn't find an excuse, I guess. But when I came to know Christ, my attitude towards those fellows changed completely. I wanted to be with them. And I started showing up in all their activities, and they said, what's John doing here? I mean, he never came before, and now he's here every time we open the door. Those are the kind of things you notice that happen in your life. And so you say, something's different. Something has happened to me, and I can't explain it. It's not me. It's not just wanting to do better. I've tried doing better. I've tried turning over a new leaf. Guess what you get? You get when you turn over a new leaf. The other side of the same leaf. Uh, and it looks a lot like the other side of the leaf. <laughs> Nothing happens. You keep on and you try and you try and you say, I've got to make this. I've got to, I've got to lift this boulder up the mountain. So let's just think for a moment about uh, how do we know that we are saved? And Scripture is filled with information that's vital for us to know about how we are going to be, how we are to be saved. And, and faith is always an element of it. There has to be belief. What are we believing in? Well, it's not just the great pumpkin, you know. It's not just warm, fuzzy feelings. The Scriptures themselves teach us how we can be saved and it also teaches us that the, that the the salvation that Christ works in us is going to be a lifelong process. There's a sense in which, uh, and there's scripture that talks this way, in which it, it tells us that we are we had we were saved if we're believers we were saved, but there's also a sense in which we are being saved. It's an ongoing thing. We're saved, ongoing, and we will be saved fully saved and delivered from uh, all uh, traces of sin in us and will be confirmed in righteousness. So you could say that we, when were we saved? We were saved when Christ died for us on the cross. That's in a sense. We knew that he died for us there. We sometimes talk about our sin nailing him to the tree. Uh, we weren't even alive then, but we think that at that time, he took upon himself all of our sin. 
and even the sin that we haven't yet committed, all of that was taken upon Christ. What a glorious thing. But the point here is that we, our salvation rests on faith, and, it, and that faith rests on Scripture. And so we sing, O Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight. Uh, wonderful thought. I'll be glad. Uh, I will be glad when my faith can be traded in for sight and we can see him. So I want us to think about how uh, we are saved in the sense that we are saved by grace. That is, it's not something we deserve. It's God's gift. We are saved by faith or through faith. That is, we believe the message that comes in Christ alone. That is, we do not rely on ourselves or on our own merit in any way. But how do we gain assurance of salvation? How do we gain that? Some of you are aware of the doctrine of election. And uh, one of, uh, one of our um, church attendees brought this up with me. And he said, well, how can I be sure I'm saved? If I know that God has elected the ones who are going to be saved, how in the world do I know I'm one of them? You, um, how can I figure that out? How can I have assurance of salvation if I don't get to peek in the book of life and see if my name is written there? That was a good question. So part of what I want to do tonight is clarify some of those things and I hope uh, leave you less confused than you might be already. Uh, or maybe you'll, well, we'll see. Um, so as I said, both salvation and assurance of salvation are a matter of faith. But our faith is not blind faith. Uh, blind faith would be, I just feel it's true. I mean, I don't have a reason, I just feel it's true. I feel a lot of things, you know, after I eat a half of a you know, 12-inch pizza and drink down a strawberry milkshake. I mean... I feel pretty good, you know. But that doesn't make me saved because I feel good. Uh, it also isn't that I'm sincere, so it must be true. I just, I know that I'm very sincere about this. I'm, I really, I'm really devout in my faith, so it must, be, it must be true. For the Christian, faith has to be based on the Word of God, that is the Bible. So, if you don't get anything else, remember this. Getting to know the Bible well is the key to gaining assurance of salvation. There is no substitute for knowing Scripture, knowing the Word. What I want to do for a few minutes here tonight is take you on a guided tour through some of the Gospel of John. And uh, this is a... The more I think about the Gospel of John in relationship to the question of, am I saved? Do I have assurance of salvation? The more I realize that this book on every page is filled with promises and illustrations and explanations and instructions about how we're saved and how we know we're saved, how we have assurance. First of all, let's take a look at John 20, uh, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. We'll start with the question, why did God, John write this gospel? 
Do you guys want to, can you put that up on the screen? John 20, 30 and 31. The Gospel of John uh, in, is very interesting in the sense that uh, can contrast with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is very, very pointed and specific as to why he wrote that Gospel. And in the next to last chapter, near the end of the book, the Apostle John makes this statement in summarizing, kind of looking back over the first uh, 20 chapters, John 20, 30, and 31. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So a couple observations on this verse. Uh, it is important, and John is making a statement clear that his intention in writing all of this is not simply to entertain us or give us something interesting stories about Jesus and the good old days when we used to do stuff with him. But rather, his intention is that those readers all the way down to us would know that Jesus, who Jesus is, that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that having faith in him come to have life in his name, to know who he is and to believe that he's the Son of God in order to have life through his, na his name. And obviously, when he's talking about life, He's not talking to people who are alive, reading it, uh, uh, merely physically alive, but people who need spiritual life, who are, apart from Christ, uh, doomed to perish. So earlier in the book, he had said, God gave his son so that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. The life that John is talking about is always eternal life. So who does Jesus say that John is? Next question. Let's go to John chapter 1, and if you can put it up there, guys. Um, John 1, 1 to 4. We'll start out, we'll go through the first 14 verses of John 1. Now, think about this in relationship to where we stand, and if we are coming to this gospel with the question, who is Jesus really? And what do I think about him? Hear these words. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now let's stop just a minute. If you'd never heard of the doctrine of the Trinity, you'd be going, what does that mean? If you heard of the doctrine of the Trinity, you might still be saying, what does that mean? Because it says that there was something called the Word that existed in the beginning and that this Word was with one we call God. But then, that's all right, but then it goes on to say, and the Word was God. 
Later, we're going to learn that, the, that God is one God, but in three persons. And so when he says the word in the beginning was the word and the word was with God, he was with God, the father and the spirit. And he was God. The word was God, God, the son. So we could say it this way. In the beginning was the word and the word was with the father and the word was the son. He was in the beginning with God. Okay. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He is the creator. Everything was made by him. In him was life. Life came from him. He created it. And the life was the light of men. I think that Paul has the same idea in mind in Romans 1 when he says that the 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 deity, the divinity and the deity of Christ or God shines through all of his creation and that everybody is without excuse because everyone who ever breathed has a notion. There is life in me. Where did that come from? What is that? And that life points a light to us. It isn't the inner light that we're seeking, not that kind of inner light, but it is a light. And it says there's a God and we have to answer to him and we need to Find out who he is. So the life in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light, verse 5, shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It's an interesting thing that it uses the illustration of light to demonstrate the, the, this quality of God that shines and can't be put out in any way. Have you ever noticed... We have a, uh, our house faces south, our bedroom faces east. So every morning the sun comes up uh, and it hits our side of our house, the window on, in our bedroom, and, you know, it wakes me up. Sometimes I don't really appreciate that. But I have never been able to go down to Lowe's or Home Depot or anywhere and buy 50 pounds of darkness and bring it in and stick it in the in the uh, my bedroom so that I'll, it'll stay dark in there. You don't do that, right? You hang, what? A curtain. You keep the light out is the only way that you can stop it, but the light doesn't go away. It's just kept out of that space. So, so it is. The, dark, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. He goes on to talk about... Um, the man sent from God. Let's read more. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. We'll find out that it's John the Baptist. Uh, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So there's a prophet and he comes to proclaim about the light. You need to know about the light. The true light, he goes on to say, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And that's what John came to tell them. He was calling them to prepare the way for the Messiah who would come. He was in the world, that is, this light who came into the world, was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. 
Now, this is the first time you're starting to think to yourself, this is kind of a little bit weird. Here is the creator, the one who is God, the one who was with God in the beginning, who always existed, the one who gave life to everyone and light thereby to everyone. And he comes into the world. He comes into this world that he made and the world didn't know him. It's bad enough they didn't know him. And then it goes on and says, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. He didn't just go to any old place. He went to the place where the people had the most information of anywhere on planet Earth. They had the Old Testament scriptures. They had the law of Moses. They had the sacrifices, these offerings for their sin that he would picture, that picture him. And, and yet, even there, they did not receive him. That was the response. What was mankind's response to the light coming into the world? We don't know him and we won't have him. But, and there's always a but, 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So there is a light, bright spot here. Not everybody rejected him. Not everybody turned him down. Not everybody ignored him. There were some who received him, who welcomed him, who believed in him. And those people, merely by their response to Christ, nothing else, not their good looks or good works or anything else, but merely by their response to Christ, they were given the right to become children of God. That means that the eternal God who is the Father then becomes their Father, just as He was Jesus' Father. He became, they gave, became children of God. What about these people? There is something else that it says about these people who received Him and believed on His name. It says that they were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. These people will later find a different phrase that talks about the same idea of being born again. These people were not born just by physical birth. They weren't born because they made an effort uh, by their own uh, works or their own will, but they were born of God. God did a work in them, you see? So two things happened at the same time. Well, maybe not the same time, but two things happened in that person who received him. That person saw Christ and believed on him. Those people, whoever they were, unnamed here, they received Christ and they believed in him. And by that, they were made children of God. But God also did something in them. He gave them a new heart, a new birth, a spiritual birth, the regenerating work of the Spirit of God in them. They may not have been able to explain that or even know what happened. All they knew is Jesus was there and they believed in Him. But John tells us that something else happened to them 
And that was they were born from above. They were born again. They were born of God. So the story goes on. And the word became flesh. This word that we talked about before in the first paragraph became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So now it's starting to get more clear. What's he talking about? John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And so the name of Jesus is mentioned for the first time. Jesus Christ, the incarnate word, the son of God made flesh to live among us. And to reveal to us the father, to, to make the father known to us. So stop and think about this for just a moment. What is your response to Jesus? Are you with those who said, we don't know who this is. We won't have anything to do with him. Or are you one who says, yes, this is the word made flesh who lived among us. I see him. He's glorious. He's filled with glory and truth. And I believe in him. You see who it is that you're believing in. It's not a man with sandals and a long robe and a beard living in, in Palestine. Not merely that. It is, a, it is God himself who has come to live among us. And if you believe, he says, you will become children of God. You are made, given the right to become children of God. Maybe this is helpful. If you're thinking about, yes, I see Jesus that way. That's the Jesus that I recognize. I believe that he is who John said he was and he said he was. I believe in him that way. You think belief in that God who took on flesh and then took our sin upon himself on the cross, do you think that could be the basis for our eternal salvation? Is that enough? Yes, 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 absolutely. And if you don't think so, you still don't understand who Jesus is. Because he is the one who could do that for us who believe in him. I'm going to make this, uh, cut this a little bit short, but just make a few more comments in our trip through John, or at least to some sites in the book of John. Jesus presented himself in chapter 6 as the bread of life. In that chapter, he fed people from, with five loaves and two fish, 5,000 people, you know, one of day's work. Uh, and 
And then he presented himself as the bread of life. He who eats will never hunger. He who drinks will never thirst. He promised that they would, if they came to him, he would satisfy what they longed for. In verse 40 of John 6, he says this, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, there were some who did not believe. And why did they not believe? They refused to believe, even though it was obvious. But what if they had come to Jesus? He says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. In verse 37, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Go with that. I know. The early part of that verse says this. Okay? We want to read the whole verse, right? All that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. All you can do is come to Christ. You can come to Christ by seeking Him, by calling upon Him, by crying out to Him. You are, in a sense, coming here to hear the Word of God proclaimed. You are coming to be given the means of grace, which is the Word of God being proclaimed to you and through that word, your faith is built. There is faith that grows in you. Do not demean or diminish the importance of hearing the word of God proclaimed. Lo and behold, you might sit here for five years, ten years, a hundred, whatever. And it might you know, suddenly sink in one day. But you are doing what you can. Faith comes by hearing and the hearing through the word of Christ. You come, you hear, you listen. And, and the word of God calls you to come to Christ and to believe in him. Repent of your sins. Repent and believe the gospel. Another picture that Jesus gives us in the gospel of John is in John chapter 10 where he talks about Jesus, calls himself the good shepherd. He talks about the sheep. Israel in the Old Testament was often likened to a herd of sheep with the shepherds of Israel being the, the leaders, the priests and the teachers, the rabbis and so forth who often neglected the sheep. Jesus was the good shepherd and he said that he's the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. In John 10, 27 to 29, he says... John 10, 27 to 29. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. It's clear to me from Scripture that God wants his sheep, Christ's sheep, to know that they are secure in Him. 
know that they are held in His hand and that nothing can snatch them out of His hand. He will see us through to the end. And I ask you, have you eaten of the bread of life? Have you heard the voice of the shepherd? Do you hear Him call? And do you follow Him? And do you trust Him for your eternal destiny? About this business of election and God choosing who will respond, I think there's an interesting illustration that may not help anybody. It may not make anybody happy, but it helps me. And maybe it'll help you. It is said that in heaven, imagine this, there's a gate into heaven. And on that gate, there is the following saying, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it by it are many. That's in Matthew 7, verse 13. There's another saying on this gate. It says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Jesus said. John, uh, Matthew eleven twenty eight. There's another saying. It says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Come, come, come to me. But then you go through that gate and you turn around and on the back side of the gate, it says this. All that the Father gives me will come to me. He chose us in Him and that's John 6, 37a. Uh, in Ephesians 1, 4-6, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. So, you don't see that until you go through the gate. But you're called to go through the gate. And when you go through the gate, you find you were already chosen by Him to believe. That should give us great comfort. We can't be lost if He finds us. He will not let us go. It doesn't mean we don't do anything. It doesn't mean we're passive. It doesn't mean we just sit here and say, well, whatever will be, will be. Do not say, I can't do anything because if I am elect, I can't be lost. Or if I am not elect, I can't be saved. The apostles preached the gospel. And in that, they called all people everywhere to repent and to believe the gospel and come to Christ and be saved and to know not only that you are saved, but that you can't be lost because He will not let you go. Amen.